Part 1 of Chapter 6 of Uncle Joe's Stories. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Allison Hester. Part 1 of Chapter 6 The Crones of Mersham. Things are very dull nowadays in the country districts of England. The country gentlemen have got into the habit of going to London a great deal more than they used to before railroads were made as extensively as has been the case of late years. The farmers, too, move about more than they did in the olden days and act very differently in many respects from their forefathers. Nor are the laborers quite the same. They ask more wages, touch their hats to master, squire, and parson less than they did, and discuss matters of politics and the government of the country, which formerly never entered their heads. I dare say it is all right. It is a wise and good frame of mind to cherish, which teaches one that whatever is, is right, although it is sometimes very difficult to think so. For instance, when my tooth takes to aching without any obvious cause, and certainly very much against my will, the fact of its doing so is well established. But the existing state of things in my face is not recognized by me, not for one single moment, as right, because it is the existing state. And when I have overdrawn my account at my banker's, and the state of things is that he will not let me do so any more, the circumstance that it is so does not reconcile me to the fact in the very slightest degree. Still, as regards the progress which this country has made, and the condition at which we have now arrived, I am ready to bow my head meekly, and allow that, as a general maxim, the general results may be admitted by me to be all right. There are the railroads, and, though the carriages are not always comfortable and the trains generally late, they afford such facilities for the gentry folk to go to town that we cannot wonder at their doing so. If it is not right that they should, surely railroads would have never been permitted, cutting up the beautiful country as they do, and sending their screaming engines along through the green fields and thriving ploughlands, where all before was peaceful and quiet. Then, if the farmers are changed, it is also all for the best, without doubt. Changed they are, beyond all question. They are a different class of men from the old species of farmer who existed fifty years ago and who seldom went further than his market town. Our farmers nowadays have all visited London again and again, and instead of the homely talk over a market dinner which used to take place in the old days, they have got chambers of agriculture in which they evince a remarkable ability in discussing anything which Parliament proposes to do about agricultural matters and talk nearly as wisely, I am told, as the members of the House of Commons itself. Still, however, I stick to my text, and say that, being as it is, it must be all right. Of course it is, and so also with regard to the laborers. When I was a boy, they did not know half as much as they do now, but they worked well for that. I have lodged in two rooms in this farmhouse, in which I write for twenty-seven years come next Michaelmas, and have often heard Farmer Barrett say that his best laborers were generally those who could neither read nor write. Most of them can do both now, and people used to say that it was a sin and a shame that every laborer should not be able to read his Bible and write his name in it. 
all right, again I say, only unfortunately, as sometimes I venture to think, it is not their Bibles they read, so much as the penny papers, and these sometimes teach them different lessons from the Bible, I fancy. Then there is a lot of cheap, well, trash, I was going to say, and I think I must, too. A lot of cheap trash, which is sent about all over the country, or which they pick up here and there, and which teaches them lessons altogether mischievous. Moreover, they have societies, which are curious sorts of concerns, I am told, and through which they are taught actually to demand an increase of wages, and various other things which were never thought of in old times. All these things have made the country districts of England very different places from what they used to be when I first knew them. That is now a long time ago, but I know a great deal that happened before I knew anything from my own eyesight and observation. I mean, before I was born. I am an old man now, and having enough money to live upon and be comfortable, I have all my lifetime indulged in my inclination for living in the country. I used to make it my principal endeavor to avoid railways. I hired lodgings in rustic villages and lived quietly therein, studying the ways and habits of the people and picking up old legends, which was always my chief delight. But wherever I went, a railroad was sure to be immediately afterwards projected through that particular district. The steam fiend seemed to have marked me out as an involuntary pioneer to herald his advance, and move where I would, he and his myrmidons very shortly appeared in my wake. This continued for five and twenty years, for I began my system of country lodging when I was a tolerably young man, barely turned thirty. When I tell you, as I did just now, that I have been in my present abode for twenty-seven years, a little calculation will show you that I shall never again see my eighty-second birthday. You will, therefore, I hope, excuse the garrulity of old age, and forgive me if I have somewhat wandered from the tale which, in fact, I have not yet begun, but which I have been leading up to all this time. For you must know that the changes of which I have been speaking have had great effect upon other people besides gentry, farmers, and laborers. There are nothing like so many witches, wizards, and curious creatures of that kind as there were in country places in the good old times. I do not for one moment say that this is to be regretted. On the contrary, I say again that being so, I have no doubt it is all right. But, right or wrong, it is undoubtedly true that the witches, warlocks, and wise women have greatly diminished, if indeed they have not altogether vanished. I hope it will be understood that by wise women, I do not allude to the ladies who give scientific lectures and talk about a variety of subjects upon which they evidently know much more than an old gentleman like I am could ever know, and, I must say, more than I should like to know about some things. This is a different kind of wisdom altogether, and there are plenty of persons who possess it, or think they do, which serves their purpose quite as well. I mean wise in the sense of possessing an unusual and supernatural insight into things which are commonly hidden from mortal knowledge. Of these people there are few, if any, left in the present day, or if there are such, they do not come to the front as they once did. 
There are indeed many persons in the world now who actually disbelieve in witches and all creatures of that sort, and who not only disbelieve in their existence now, but who stoutly maintain that they never did exist. I don't know how they get over the Witch of Endor or the various other allusions to witches in the Bible, but I suppose they do somehow or other. People are much too clever for me nowadays and get over any difficulty that comes in their way, or fancy that they do so, and trouble themselves no more about it. I have even heard people disbelieve in fairies, but that, of course, is sheer nonsense, and no one who wanders, as I have often done, at all seasons and at all hours, through the glorious English woodlands can doubt the existence of the dear little elves. Doubt their existence? I should as soon think of doubting my own. How do the fairy rings come, I should like to know? Whence comes the name of the fairy well? Not uncommon by any means. Oh, no, I do not believe that anybody disbelieves that fairies exist, though I know that there is a dreadful amount of unbelief in the world regarding warlocks and witches. I am glad to say that good Farmer Barrett was never one of the unbelievers. He was near upon seventy when I first came to lodge under his roof, so that if he had lived till now, he would have been ninety-seven. As he didn't, however, it is no use making the remark. He died some twelve years ago, when about eighty-five. Cut off, as one might say, in the prime of life. Ah, me, how our friends, young and old, fall around us like grass. My godson, Jack Barrett, here remarks, with less of reverence than I could have wished, in speaking of his grandfather, that a man taken away at eighty-five would be better compared to hay than grass. Well, well, Jack is young, barely forty, and boys must have their jokes, as we all know. I was going to say that good Farmer Barrett's death affected me very much. He was a very great comfort to me, was Farmer Barrett. It was not only that we agreed upon most points, and thought alike in a manner most satisfactory to both of us, that was a great comfort, living as we did under the same roof, and sitting together, either in his kitchen or my parlor, almost every evening, to enjoy a quiet gossip. But there were other comforts, too, and the chief one, that which I may fairly consider the principal advantage which I reaped from the society of Farmer Barrett, was derived from his extraordinary knowledge of the legends and traditions of his native country concerning witches and wizards. Many and many an evening have we sat talking upon such matters, till I have really felt quite nervous about going to bed. Not that I am a nervous man, not by any means, but I own that more than once, after discussing witches and their cats to a late hour, I have felt a curious sensation when the house cat came rubbing herself against my shins, and have looked with a species of creepy feeling over my left shoulder as I went upstairs to bed, almost thinking I should see something uncanny close behind me. I never knew that any man with such a collection of stories and legends as old Barrett. He had tales without end of the warlock of Coombe, the wizard of Bockhanger, and the witch of Brook Hollow. He could tell of the dark doings of the hag of Hoffield, and the fearful creature who so long inhabited the regions of Charing, and darkened the woods of Long Beach with her awesome shadow. I do not believe that any witch or wizard ever existed in Kent 
whose story was not well known to Barrett. Of his own knowledge, he could tell something. Once, there happened a curious thing in his stables. His two teams of horses, fed alike, housed equally well, and treated with precisely the same care, strangely varied in their appearance and condition. One team were always sleek and slim, fat and well-liking, like Pharaoh's fat kind, and the admiration of all beholders. The other team were just the reverse. Nothing they took seemed to agree with them, and they fell away, their bones started through their skins, and their appearance was a disgrace to the farm. This state of things greatly puzzled and annoyed the farmer and his men. Barrett himself laid the blame upon the wagoner and his mate, and threatened to discharge both of them if things went on so, as he felt sure they petted one team of horses at the expense of the other. The men earnestly denied the charge, and were evidently much vexed at its having been made. Things went on the same until, at last, the wagoner, who was a clever and withal a courageous man, determined to sit up all night and watch. He did so, being carefully hidden in the corner of the stable. The horses fed well and lay down as usual. All was quiet until twelve o'clock struck. At that moment, several little men, about a foot high, leaped down from the loft above the stables and, going to the favored team, began to brush and comb them with great care and energy, rubbing them well all over and uttering no words to anybody as they did so, save to each other as they worked, as if to encourage themselves to greater exertions. I work, you work. I work, you work, they kept saying, and the coats of the horses rapidly became more smooth and glossy until, when the little men had finished, they were perfect models of what horses should be. They merely looked at the other team with funny faces, and then hastened up again to their loft. All this the wagoner duly told his master the next morning, and of course, with the natural incredulity of men, he at first refused to believe it. But when upon the man again and again assuring him of its truth, he determined to put the matter to proof by hiding himself that same night. He saw precisely the same thing and was, of course, convinced. I forget how the story ended, but I know that, somehow or other, he managed to get some wise person in the neighborhood to speak up for the poor, thin team and prevent the little elves, or whatever they were, from spiting them any more. Then the farmer had a tale, which had been told him by a groom he once had in his service, who came from the hill above Charing. Up over the hill there was a reputed witch, Mrs. Dorland. I questioned the groom about this woman myself, so I may as well give the story in his own words. She were noted a witch, she were, he said. How do you know? I asked, not because I myself doubted for a moment, but because I wanted to glean all the particulars I possibly could. Bless ye, sir, replied the youth. I knows all about it because of my grandfather. She wouldn't ever let him alone. I expect he'd affronted her one time or other. I recollect when I was a-staying along with him once, and the door locked and all, he looked over the stairs, and there, sure enough, was old Dame Dorland on the mat at the bottom, and her eyes, oh, they glounded in her head, they did. 
"'But how did she get in?' I asked. "'That's just what I want to know,' answered the boy. "'The door was shut and fast locked, but there she was anyhow. "'Another time my grandfather had to drive some bullocks down to Ashford Market, "'and he overtook Dame Dorland. "'She had a basket on her arm, and she asked my grandfather to carry it for her. "'He wouldn't. "'I expect he didn't know what bad game might be up. "'Well, do you think he could keep his bullocks in the road after that?' not he they was over the hedge first one side and then another and then they was for running back he couldn't do nothing with them so he turns back and offers to carry the old girl's basket then the bullocks was all right directly and he had no trouble in getting them along all the way to ashford since farmer barrett had lived all his life in a county where such people as dame dorland were to be found there can hardly be much surprise felt at his entire and implicit belief in witchcraft. But the most wonderful tale that he ever told me was that which not only concerned the county, but the very district in which he dwelt. It is a story to which I listened with intense interest when I first heard it, and my interest was never lessened by its repetition. Again and again I asked the old farmer to go over it once more, and I cross-examined him upon all the particulars of his tale in a manner which would really have offended some people of my acquaintance. He, however, was not only not offended, but pleased at the perseverance with which I questioned him. He told me the story, in fact, so often that I got to know it nearly by heart, and I think it is one which I ought to relate for the benefit of a world in which, as far as I can see, belief of any kind and certainly belief in witches and the like, will shortly be extinct. The parish of Mersham has long been known as a favorite resort of queer people of the kind of whom I am speaking. It is a very long, narrow parish, much narrower, of course, at some parts than others. Its north end runs into and beyond the park of Mersham Hatch, that is, the west side of the park, the east side being in the parishes of Braeburn and Smeath. The south part of the parish joins Bilsington and Aldington, and on the southwest you are very close upon the Ruckenage and Orlestone Big Woods, so close that I am not sure whether a portion of that vast tract of woodland does not actually lie within the boundaries of the parish of Mersham. Be that as it may, it is a wild part of the world, and just the very sort of place in which you would fancy witches and their confederates to abound. Whether you fancy it or not, however, beyond all doubt, such was the case, in the good old times of which I speak. No one ever dreamed of being out at night in those parts, if he could possibly help it. The roads were wretchedly bad, full of deep ruts and big stones, with ditches inconveniently exposed on either side, and bushes jutting out from the adjoining woods in the most awkward manner for the traveller. But it was not the badness of the roads which deterred people from moving about at night, or towards evening, but something much worse, namely the strange and terrible beings who frequented the locality. All kinds of rumors were current with respect to witch meetings and gatherings held by wicked creatures, upon which, if a mortal man of ordinary mold happened to come, he ran a terrible risk of some dreadful misfortune happening to him and his shortly afterwards. 
cottages were few and far between. There was scarce a public house to be found in the neighbourhood, save one or two which had an evil reputation as the haunt of smugglers and outlawed men. No gentleman's house was near, and Bilsington Priory had passed away with all its holy train of priests, and nothing was to be seen of their former glory, and no vestige of themselves either, unless it was true that a monk walked occasionally round the walls with ghostly tread and moaned deeply and sadly as he compared the past with the present. In short, it was a wild, weird country, and wild, weird people dwelt there. From Aldington Knoll, right away down the other side of Ham Street, the thick woods contained a class of beings who, if they lived there nowadays, would be a horror to all Christian men and an intolerable nuisance to the Kent County Constibulary. There were, however, honest men there, as everywhere else, and, although for the most part such people preferred to dwell nearer Mersham Street or immediately below the church, yet the scattered cottages further south were not altogether without inmates, who, having nowhere else to live, lived there. John Gower was one of these, a respectable, middle-aged man who won his bread by the sweat of his brow and was proud of the name of a Kentish laborer. John had married early in life, lost his wife after the birth of their fourth child, and remained a widower ever since. Although he could neither read nor write, he was blessed with good common sense and was able to give his children plain and sensible advice which might serve them, he said, in as good stead as book-learning, if they would only lay it to heart and act upon it. His eldest girl, Mary, was as good a girl as you would meet in a day's journey. She had her good looks, as most Mersham girls have, but she had that which is even better than good looks, an even temper and a good disposition. She was about seventeen when our story begins. Her brother, Jack, between fifteen and sixteen, was away at work down in the shires, as the neighbors called all other counties but their own, and two little ones, Jane, under fourteen, and Billy, just twelve, were at home, the former helping her sister as well as she could, and the latter doing such odd jobs as could be found for him, and doing no more mischief than a boy of his age could help. The cottage in which they lived was very near the big woods, too near to be pleasant for any one who feared witches or wizards, and it must be confessed that John Gower was not without his fears. He had various horseshoes nailed up about his premises to keep the evil creatures off, and he carefully barred his doors and windows every night, not knowing what might happen if any of them were left open. He could tell of strange cries heard in the woods at night, and if you suggested that they might proceed from owls, he shook his head sadly and gravely as one who knew better and grieved over your doubting spirit but in spite of his fears and precautions and the strange locality in which he lived gower could not be called otherwise than a cheerful man he worked all day got home as soon as he could was pleasant and happy with his children of whom he was very fond and was certainly of a contented disposition and one who made the best of the world and took things as he found them. Such was he, and such was his family at the time that the occurrences took place which I am about to relate. Some years before the date at which our story commences, 
there had lived at the extreme south of the parish of Mersham a woman of the name of Betty Bartlett. She was not only a reputed witch, but the fact of her being so was testified to by a great number of credible witnesses who had either suffered in their own persons from her evil power, or had seen and heard things which could not have been had she been an ordinary and Christian woman. She lived to a very great age, nobody knew exactly how old she was when she died, and although the rumours respecting her career caused the clergyman of the parish to entertain serious doubts as to the course he should pursue, she was eventually carried to Mersham churchyard to be therein interred. But if I am correctly informed, and I obtained my information from highly respectable people, there were strange and terrible doings at her funeral. She was carried on a wagon from the cottage in which she had breathed her last as far as the bridge over the river Stour, which flows, as all the world knows, a few hundred yards south of the church. There, from some unknown cause, the horses would not cross the bridge, and it was told me that they seemed quite exhausted with the short journey, little over three miles, which they had performed. So the people unharnessed them from the wagon, placed all that remained of old Betty on the shoulders of eight stout bearers, and marched forward towards the churchyard. But not only was their burden wondrously heavy, but it seemed to grow heavier as they went on, and they had the greatest difficulty in making their way up the short hill, and so round to the right towards the churchyard. And just before they got to the gate, why or wherefore nobody could tell, one of the bearers stumbled, and in doing so tripped up another, and down came the whole concern with a great crash upon the ground. Everything connected with their burden suddenly disappeared. A vast cloud of black dust arose and blew all over the place, and out of the dust flew a great black bird with a strange and awful croak, with which it terribly frightened the bystanders and bearers, as it flew off directly in the contrary direction to the churchyard. What happened immediately afterwards, Farmer Barrett never heard, or at least he never told me. But nobody ever doubted that the old witch had flown off in the shape of the black, fearsome bird, being unable to enter the holy ground of the churchyard. Be this as it may, the ancient woman left behind her three daughters, who had all inherited their mother's wickedness, and were witches every one of them. Their actual names were Betty, Jane, and Sarah, but they were popularly known as Skinny, Bony, and Humpy, the two elder sisters being thin and gaunt, whilst the youngest was shorter and had a species of hump between her shoulders. Every one in Mersham, and for the matter of that, in the adjoining parishes also, knew these three sisters by sight, and avoided them as much as possible. No conceivable misfortune ever happened in that neighborhood that was not attributed to their influence, and all that went wrong was immediately laid at their door. The sisters were well aware of the awe with which the neighbors regarded them, and took good care that it should not diminish, never losing an opportunity of frightening those simple people with whom they came in contact. They lived in a long, low cottage, scarcely worthy of the name of cottage, so miserable was it both as regards the outside building and the inside accommodation. The roof was of thatch, and the dwelling itself 
was at one end built of kentish rag stone but badly constructed and all the rest of it was composed entirely of wood and apparently afforded but poor shelter against wind and rain the women lived mostly at the stone-built end of their house for there was their kitchen such as it was but very little was known of the interior of this place inasmuch as nobody came near it who could possibly go another way it was situate however barely half a mile from john gower's cottage a fact which caused him and his no little annoyance inasmuch as the three crones of mersham as they were usually called were not the best of neighbours and never very particular as far as other people's property was concerned now john gower had a great number of relations in fact there was and is an old proverb in his native parish to the effect that if you know the gowers you know all mersham and certainly the knowledge would to this day make you acquainted with a large quantity of people they were none of them rich relations certainly unless you might have applied that adjective to the wife of a certain farmer long who lived a few miles off and whose husband might certainly be said to be thriving sally long was a stout comfortable-looking dame who could not fairly have found fault if you had called her fat but who unlike most fat people was not gifted with the best of tempers if all reports were true she led her husband rather a life of it and scolded pretty equally all her household she had no children and her husband's son by a former wife being a trifle weak in the head and for that reason generally known by the name of simple steenie there was no one to dispute her authority in the house yard or farm these worthy people lived in the parish of aldington and although john gower was no looker after dead men's shoes and a man who would have scorned to bow down before any one for the sake of their wealth he thought it was but right and fair towards his children to encourage them to maintain friendly relations with his distant cousin dame long she had noticed the children more than once when they were quite little things and when a woman of a certain age with no children of her own notices the children of other people who happen to be her own relations there is no telling what may come of it so the boys had orders to take their caps off and the girls to drop a respectful curtsey whenever they passed mrs long and any little act of civility which they could possibly perform was never forgotten now it happened that someone many years ago had given to the gower family a very particular cat when i use the word particular i do not mean to imply a very strict or fastidious cat but one that was particular in the sense of being different from the general run of cats which was certainly true of this individual cat she was jet black which you will say is not at all uncommon but farmer barrett always maintained that no cats that he had ever heard of were so jet and glossy as the gower cats she was a magnificent animal her whiskers unusually long her tail splendidly bushy her body beautifully and symmetrically made and her head in size shape and the intelligence which was displayed upon her face little short of perfection this cat lived until a great age and nobody exactly knew when or where it died to tell the truth there was always a legend in the gower family that it never did die 
at least not in their cottage, but that it disappeared on the very day of old Betty Bartlett's death. I do not know, for Farmer Barrett could not tell me, though I asked him more than once, how they connected the two events, but nevertheless they had in this legend, if so I may call it. But whatever happened to this cat, of one thing there is certainly no doubt, namely that during her lifetime she, several times, went through the ceremony of kittening, and that her race seemed by no means likely to be extinct. Her kittens were always black, always very glossy, and always remarkably clever and intelligent, and people were always glad to get a kitten of the Gower breed. So when upon a fine summer's morning, one of the descendants of the famous animal of which I have spoken was found by John Gower with a little family of four kittens around her. He and his children were not displeased at the addition to the household, and when, after a few days, one of these kittens appeared to be developing into an animal more comely and more sprightly than the rest, the worthy man thought it would be a proper and becoming compliment upon his part if he made a present of it to good Mrs. Long. So he told Mary that she should take it up in a little basket the very next day, give his duty to old Aunt Sally, for so they called her in the cottage when they spoke of her among themselves, though it was always Mrs. Long when they spoke to her, and asked her acceptance of the gift. Mary made her preparations accordingly. She could not go up to the farm in the morning, for she had the rooms to do, the house to sweep, father's dinner to get ready and carry to him, and a number of little jobs to get done, which it was necessary to finish before she could feel herself at liberty to go out. At last, however, every duty seemed to have been discharged, as is always the case, at some time or other, if people will only set themselves at work to do resolutely that which they have before them to do, instead of sitting down with folded hands and sighing over the prospect of it. It must have been between three and four o'clock in the afternoon when Mary found that she could get away with a clear conscience. Then she put on her little straw hat, donned her gray cloak, put the kitten in a little basket with a little hay for it to lie on, and called her brother Billy to come with her, wisely thinking this the most likely way to keep him out of mischief. It was a truly glorious afternoon, such as an English summer's afternoon often is. Talk to me about foreign countries, as Farmer Barrett often used to say, snapping his fingers audibly. That, for you furry nearers, there ain't no land like old England to my mind, and, being myself old and prejudiced, I confess that I am very much of the good old farmer's opinion. It is very charming, no doubt, to roam through foreign lands, and there is doubtless much to admire. When I shut my eyes and muse over the beautiful views I have seen, many such come back to me with pleasing memories. I see the sparkling Rhine with castle-crowned heights and scenery world-worshipped for its varied beauty. I gaze with a delight tempered with awe upon the mighty snow-clad mountains of life-breathing Switzerland. I sit upon the shores of the Sea of Seas, the Mediterranean, and I cast my eyes upon its waters of eternal blue. And most wonderful sight of all, I stand upon the plateau opposite the Cascatil at Tivoli, and with the waterfall and town on one side, Adrian's villa nestling below on the left, and the hills behind, 
Look out over the vast Campagna with its ever-changing lights. See Rome, grand, glorious Rome, in the far distance, and feel carried out of myself and away from all the ideas of mere earth and earthly things as I lose all individuality of being in the absorbing contemplation of a beauty so divinely sublime. And then, as the magic power of thought enables me to move faster than railroads, steamers, or electric telegraphs, I suddenly transport myself to a quiet, homely English scene upon a summer's afternoon, and I think to myself that neither the Rhine, Switzerland, nor Italy can produce anything more pleasing to the eye, more soothing to the senses, or more entirely enjoyable to any person capable of enjoyment, and not given to despise the beauties of scenery merely because they can be seen at home without hurrying off to foreign lands. Such a summer's afternoon fell on this particular day of which we are now speaking. There was hardly a breath of air, but the woods, having got their shady green dress on, kept off the heat of the sun from the traveller on the road which intersected them. It was very warm, though, and very still, and you might hear the voices of the woodland birds singing in notes which seemed somewhat subdued, as if the heat forbade the songsters to exert themselves to their full strength. But warm as it was, there was a very pleasant feeling in the air. Nature seemed to be basking in the sun and thoroughly enjoying herself. The rabbits hopped across the road as quietly as if there were no such things as weasels in the world, and keepers had never existed. The old jay flitted heavily from tree to tree, her hard note softened down to a low, guttural sound. All insect life was on the move, and every living being seemed to delight in the genial weather. Of course, under these circumstances, Mary and Billy Gower did not walk very fast. On the contrary, they rather dawdled, for Billy saw now and then a butterfly, now and then a bird's nest, and was constantly tempted to leave the road and dive into the woods on either side, whilst his sister did not like to hurry on and leave him, and saw no reason for particular haste. They passed along for some way without adventure, until Aldington Knoll came into sight, although they were still in the shady lanes of their own parish. Then, on turning a corner, they came suddenly upon two figures approaching them from the opposite direction, that is to say, as if they had come from Aldington Knoll. The children needed no second glance to tell them that they were in the presence of two of the Mersham crones. Lanky and Skinny were the lovely pair whom they had the good fortune thus to meet, and the children felt by no means comfortable when they saw them. Mary, indeed, being now seventeen, and hardly to be deemed a child any longer, felt no babyish fear at the sight of the old woman. She was, as I have said, a good sort of girl, and one who tried to do her duty, and she had a feeling within her, as such people generally have, that as long as she did so, no great harm would be allowed to happen to her. But as for little Billy, who had occasionally been threatened when naughty that he should be given to the crones, he could by no means be restrained from great manifestations of fear. He trembled greatly as soon as he saw the two, clutched hold of his sister's gown, and begged her to turn back and run away as they were still forty or fifty yards from the old women. 
This, however, would have been contrary to Mary's sense of right. She had been sent by her father to perform a certain duty, and that duty, come what would, she meant to discharge, unless prevented by superior force. So she trudged on steadily along the road, and her brother accompanied her, probably because he thought it the least of two evils, and was too much terrified to run away. As they neared the two crones, they could not but feel that there was nothing either prepossessing or agreeable in the appearance of the latter. Their clothes were untidy and ill-fitting. Each had a kind of hood half drawn over her head, but not sufficiently so as to conceal her decidedly ugly figures, whilst a certain wild, haggard look, which sat upon their faces, was anything but calculated to put the traveller at his ease. They walked, or rather crawled, along one side of the road, and close behind them followed a gaunt cat, which, if formerly black, was now grey with age, and which wore upon its face the same haggard look which was so plainly discernible upon those of the hags themselves. Mary and Billy walked quietly on, and were just passing these strange beings, and really beginning to hope that they might be allowed to do so without interruption, when they were suddenly pulled up by the harsh voice of the crone nearest to them, who called out, Stop! in a voice harsher than the croak of a raven, but with such a tone of authority that no thought of disobeying her entered the head of either of those she addressed even for a single moment. "'Stop, young people,' she said a second time. "'Whither away so fast this afternoon?' Mary civilly replied, "'We are going up to Farmer Long's, ma'am. Father sent us.' "'Ah,' replied the crone, "'going up to Farmer Long's for father, are ye my chickens? "'Fine times, forsooth, when John Gower's children go visiting "'instead of minding their business at home. "'But pray,' "'What have you got in that basket, my pretty minikin? "'Only a kitten, ma'am, that father is going to give to Aunt Sal, "'I mean, to Mrs. Long,' replied the girl. "'Only a kitten!' cried the other crone, who had not yet spoken. "'Only a kitten, indeed! "'And how does John Gower, the laborer, have kittens to give away, I should like to know?' "'Our poor old Grimalkin here has lost a kitten lately.' I wonder whether this can be the same, straight over to John Gower's house. If he had a kitten to give away, he might have thought of his poor neighbor's methinks instead of the rich farmer's wife. When Mary heard these words, she began to tremble for the safety of her kitten, for as I have already remarked, the crones of Mersham were not famous for distinguishing clearly between other people's property and their own. So she made reply very quickly in these words, Please, ma'am, this kitten can't be your cat's, because we've known it ever since it was born, and its mother, too, and it has never been out of our charge yet. No matter, no matter, said the crone in a testy voice. Let me see it, and I shall soon know all about it. Mary did not dare refuse, nor would it have been much use if she had done so. The crone stretched out her long, skinny hand, and, lifting the basket lid, saw the little black kitten, which, immediately that it saw her, crouched down in the corner of the basket and uttered a low moaning sound. "'Poor little thing!' said the old hag. "'Poor little thing! I can hardly see it so. 
Look, Sister Jane. And the other crone came and peered also into the basket, whilst the kitten continued to crouch and moan. The very image of our Grimalkin. I do declare, cried the second crone after a moment, it must be hers. There can be no doubt at all about it. So saying, she put her hand down and stroked the back of the kitten, as if about to take it out of the basket. As soon as she touched it, however, the little animal, young as it was, appeared to go into a paroxysm of fear and fury. It growled and spit, made as if it would spring out of the basket, and suddenly inflicted a severe scratch on the hand which was about to seize it. The old woman's face immediately became distorted with rage, and as she hastily withdrew her hand, she fixed her eyes steadily upon the kitten, muttering at the same time some words which the children could not understand, but which sounded in their ears like anything but a prayer. Neither of the crones, however, tried further to interfere with the kitten, but begged of the children to give them money, saying that they were nearly starving. Billy, of course, had nothing, and Mary only had a penny, but she thought it best to give that for fear of being bewitched if she refused. So, sorrowfully enough, the poor child drew out her only coin and placed it in the hand of one of the hags, who grinned frightfully by way of thanks, and allowed the children to proceed on their way, although, before they did so, they could not help noticing the strange conduct of Grimalkin, who threw herself on the side of the road, turned over and over, grinned like a Cheshire cat, and appeared to be convulsed with laughter at all that had occurred. Mary and Billy, however, glad to have got away from the old women, hurried forward towards Farmer Long's dwelling. But now the conduct of the kitten became inexplicable. Up to the time of their meeting the crones, it had behaved like a decent little animal of tender years, nestling quietly in its basket and giving no trouble to anybody. It now took quite a different course. It moaned and whined as if it wanted to get out. It pushed against the basket, first on one side and then on the other, as if trying to force its way through, and behaved in all respects as if it were a mad kitten. Although, as I never saw a mad kitten, I am not sure how they do behave exactly. But this was Farmer Barrett's expression, and a man of his years and experience was not likely to be wrong. But more than this, although the kitten was young and small, and had therefore been very light and easy to carry, scarcely had the children passed the crones than its weight seemed to increase vastly, and it became four times as heavy as before until poor Mary's arm quite ached with carrying it. Billy, seeing her trouble, advised her to turn it out into the woods, but Mary would not do this, being determined to obey her father's orders. So she trudged steadily on until they came to the farm to which they had been sent. There they asked if Mrs. Long was at home, and were presently ushered into the presence of that good lady to whom they told the object of their visit. She received them very graciously, and expressed herself much pleased with John Gower's attention in sending her the kitten, saying that she had always desired to have one of that breed. They opened the basket, and she was going to take the creature out, when it looked her straight in the face, and she drew back her hand at once. "'Lolks, child!' she said to Mary. 
how the things eyes do shine like live coals of fire i do declare i never seen such eyes in all my born days that i never did as she spoke the kitten saved her the trouble of removing it from the basket by jumping out of its own accord onto the table where it sat glowering at the party and making a low noise between a purr and a growl until mrs long brought it some milk with which it proceeded to regale itself and the children having had a slice of cake each and been duly charged with the good lady's thanks to their father took their departure and reached the cottage without further adventure End of part one of chapter six of Uncle Joe's Stories.